This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, It is time once again for Evidence for Faith. This is the show where we explain the benefits of Christianity for personal happiness and human flourishing, where we give you the arguments and the evidences that Christianity is true. Hello, I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. And we are going to be talking today about genetics, about some of the incredible discoveries that scientists have made in the realm of microbiology and how it shows that Evolution happened as the Bible describes it. All animals coming from kinds of animals, from initial sets of information that is allowed to adapt and actually purposely adjusts itself and varies itself on its own. Now, Keith, I'd, I'd like to remind our listening audience that as people who believe in the created kind account— we do believe in microevolution, and that is genetic variability and adaptability. Correct. We're going to be talking about all of the um, mechanisms that were pre-programmed into the genomes of the various kinds of animals uh, from day one, which allows for that variability and the adaptability that we see over time and depending on the environment that the uh, uh, kind is living in. So, again, I want to reiterate that we do believe that microevolution occurs. In fact, all of the uh, genetic research demonstrates that. In fact, they're starting to elucidate the various mechanisms by which these processes occur. Uh, some of the jargon that we're going to use is going to be a little bit technical and sometimes hard to follow. We're going to try to keep it uh, in a um, format that's going to be understandable and easy to follow along. Right. If you would like to call in and join the discussion, you can reach us at 609-398-1020. We are also podcasting on iTunes, and we have a website, evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. And you can find us on Facebook under Evidence for Faith, the number four. So many ways to keep in touch with us, and one being that if you are in the southern New Jersey area, you can call us at 609-398-1020. Well, Mike, I pulled a quote of the day out. This is from Mortimer Adler, and this is sent via Apologetics 315. Mortimer Adler was a very famous scholar who was an atheist for most of his life and converted to theism at least. I'm not sure if he converted to Christianity, but here's an interesting quote from him. I suspect that most of the individuals who have religious faith are content with blind faith. They feel no obligation to understand what they believe. They may even wish not to have their beliefs disturbed by thought. But if God, in whom they believe, created them with intellectual and rational powers— that imposes upon them the duty to try to understand the creed of their religion. Not to do so is to verge on superstition. So this is the show where if you want to get rid of superstition and you want to listen to true science and the truth about Scripture and Christianity, this is the place to find it. You know, Keith, even looking at the... Um uh, content of this show and preparing for this show, mm -hmm, for today's. We're, we're actually going to be using science to prove that the created kinds came first. Right. And that ad adaptation and um, variability came second. It was pre-programmed. That's the genetic research today. It's actually showing what the Bible stated thousands of years ago. Absolutely. Well, I've got one news item that I wanted to go over. This is interesting. This comes from Breakpoint.org, and they talk about a news article published on the BBC, and I'll just briefly read a few paragraphs of this because it's so interesting. It confirms that Christianity is good for business, and guess who's discovering that? 
Could that be the Obama administration? No, it would be the Chinese government. The Chinese government is studying the impact of Christian entrepreneurs and Christian-run businesses. A professor at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences told the reporter, this BBC reporter by the name of Landau, that it's clear to him that the growth of Christianity and economic prosperity are taking place simultaneously in Wenzhou, this is a Chinese city, a city deeply influenced by Christian missionaries in the past. Now, Breakpoint also points out that this is, shouldn't be anything new to us because of the work of a sociologist by the name of Rodney Stark, and they mention something that he writes about in his book, The Victory of Reason, How Christianity Led to Freedom, Capitalism, and Western Success. They say Stark writes that without Christianity's commitment to, quote, reason, progress, and moral equality, Today, the entire world would be about where non-European societies were in, say, 1800. This would be a world lacking universities, banks, factories, eyeglasses, chimneys, and pianos, not to mention scientists. And then it continues, amazingly enough, at the end of his book, Stark quotes a published statement by Chinese scholars who say that they had no doubt that Christianity is the source of Western prosperity. Quote, the Christian moral foundation of social and cultural life, they said, was what made possible the emergence of capitalism and the successful transition to democratic politics, close quote. So this just goes along hand in hand with the fact that if you look at the true causes of the economic collapse that we have suffered the past two years, you will find a collapse in morals. So people are giving up on Christian morals, and you will suffer the consequences. You'll suffer economically. Yeah, it's all about corporate greed, and that's why we have this uh, major, major problem that uh, the entire world is uh, suffering from right now. So, Keith, let's talk about organisms, kinds, Darwinism, and mac- s- macroevolution versus yep. microevolution. Yep. I think right at the outset we should uh, define those terms. All right, well— uh, you mentioned earlier that microevolution is essentially what we call adaptation. Mm-hmm. It's small changes within a kind of animal, say a dog kind. So you can go from a wolf to a chihuahua, a fox, but you can't go from a wolf to a grizzly bear. That would be macroevolution. That would be major changes from one kind to another. And those are the kinds of changes that there is no evidence for and cannot happen because you it requires brand new genetic information. But the amazing thing is just how well designed the genome is to allow for from a single pair of wolves in the Middle East to spread out all across the world to all of the dog kinds to 34 different species of dog-like animal and all pre-programmed into the DNA, all pre-programmed into the genetic system. We should mention, too, for our podcast listeners, we missed a podcast because of a problem at the studio. They missed part one of this talk last week. The radio listeners will remember that we introduced the idea of something called variation-inducing genetic elements. So that's these different types of genetic mechanisms that help to change the gene structure around and turn on and off genes to make organisms vary. So then there's also this concept of facilitated variation. So that's this concept that there are all these variation-inducing genetic elements that allow for change. Well, you know, Keith, let me let me just make a couple of comments uh, about... Um uh, genetic mutations. Most point mutations are uh, mean- meaningless and pretty much harmless. Right. There is a rare mutation that can occur that can cause difficulty with uh, the organism, propagation of the species, adaptability, and so forth. And these are the ones that would cause disease, death, and deformity. But very rarely do you have a major, major point mutation that will cause a problem. Most most times it's a, a neutral um, type of mutation. Right. Um, but point mutations can occur in either the coding part 
of the of the genome, um, and it can be slightly detrimental. But mostly, it just causes genetic background noise, and and it can accumulate with time. So you can have many many point mutations over time that really aren't going to amount to much of anything. Okay, but you can also have point mutations in the regulatory part of the DNA units, and that can induce variations with respect to the type and the amount of output uh, of, of certain functions within that, uh, that cell. And people have the mistaken idea that that's all that happens in evolution, that you have these SNPs or single nucleic polymorphisms where it's just a single point mutation, and that's what runs changes in species. But what we'll be showing is that that's not true at all, that it's actually caused by these variation-inducing genetic elements. And we talked about one area, which was the immune defense system. Mm -hmm. So, Mike, explain how the immune defense system... Well, uh, I, I had mentioned uh, this last week, and for the benefit of our, our podcast listeners, I'm going to try to um, rehash it and hopefully make it a little bit simpler. Just briefly, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, your immune system uh, has a variety of components uh, to it, uh, but I'm going to focus uh, predominantly on the immune function of the B lymphocyte, the B cells, because they produce a whole host of defense proteins that we call immunoglobulins or antibodies. Right. Okay. And what do those do? Everybody knows that we have antibodies. When we have an invading organism, the antibodies uh, attack they coat the invading organism, and then the rest of the immune cascade kicks in and destroys the invading bug, you know, whether it's a, a, a germ, a bacterium, or a, a virus, or even a fungus, for that matter, you know, whether it's an infection in your leg or, or pneumonia. But anyway, the B cells are pre-programmed uh, to produce these antibodies that perhaps are in the shape of a, a Y, okay? Uh, and the connecting portion of the Y, if you will, has a variety of different uh, protein components that then cause an, adap an adaptation and a, um, it, it triggers the B cells to produce a specific protein for that germ, that invading virus but, or, or bacterium. Okay, but how does it do that? Well, when, when you have um, a germ that attacks your system internally, uh, the immunoglobulin production um, uh, is very limited for that specific germ. But what happens is uh, the biologic information is translated inside the cell internally so that with each set of immunoglobulins produced in successive generations, they become more and more uh, specific. Okay. And, and it does that by changing the genetic information, deliberately correct. changing the genes around. There, there are pre-existing DNA sequences that can be independently um, run, right. but... With specificity and time, they become more and more highly specialized to attack that specific germ. Right. So, okay. so that's, that's just an example of how the body uses the ability to change genes deliberately in order to fight off microorganisms. So that's something we went into more depth last week. And we also talked about the fact that it's not just genetic information at the DNA level, at the nucleotide level the gene or the alleles that can be changed, but also the chromosomes themselves. And the chromosomes are the, the kind of wrapped up DNA that are inside the body. And that also can be adjusted and repositioned in the reproductive cells to allow for change. When an organism is under stress, it allows for the organism to change to better adapt to its environment. And this is all done deliberately. And the way we know that it's done deliberately is because there are all kinds of control mechanisms that make it happen, turn it on and off, adapt for the changes. For instance, when two chromosomes come together, there will be an extra centromere. There are actual mechanisms that will remove the second centromere. All kinds of repair mechanisms and that's how we know that this is actually designed to happen because it's under a controlled system. It's not just accidentally happening. It's happening on purpose. Yeah, and, and the interesting thing, Keith, is that there's numerous, numerous design mechanisms that contribute uh, to this uh, by repairing breaks or silencing the extra centromeres. They adjust for the amounts of the, the heterochromatin and, and possibly even altering the position of the centromere. Um, and these, these rearrangements can indicate... Um, and allow for adaptation to a changing environment. 
especially when there is a stress, whether it's weather or drought or uh, types of food substances that are available. We're going to talk a little bit more about that specifically. Right. So let's uh, talk now about how organisms remain within kinds. They stay in their specific area. So Darwin wrote extensively about variation, right? And that's one of the things that was good about the theory of evolution was its ability to describe variation. It was very poor at describing complexity, but very good at describing variation. And he used to breed pigeons. Now, I raised pigeons when I was a kid, so I know a little bit about this and went to many pigeon shows and saw the breeders showing off their fancy breeds. So it was very interesting reading about how Darwin used his pigeon breeding experiments to talk about variation. And he argued correctly that all the domestic pigeons descended from the rock pigeon, a certain wild type. And what's interesting is that his breeding experiments led him to discover the principle of reversion to ancestral characteristics. Now, what do I mean by that? If you look at uh, the various kinds of pigeons, mm-hmm. if you started doing breeding experiments, you could actually go back to the original wild type. Right. In other words, it reverts back to the original wild type. Whereas if he, if he had pushed his pigeons in the other direction, he should have been able to breed, let's say, a pig or a bat oh, or if, something long, along yeah, those if, lines. If macroevolution were true. Right, but that didn't happen. What he found was that it went back to the original wild type. Right. He bred two types of pigeons, I think black pigeons and white pigeons, and he was able to get the rock pigeon in just two generations. Right. And this this reversion to ancestors, the original wild type, actually argues against evolution. Right. Because you're not making any progress. Right. You actually go backwards to the original wild type. Yeah. So he also argued that all varieties of things like ducks and rabbits, that they all descended from this wild form. So he knew about kinds of animals. He knew, you know, that you could go back and get the original kind yeah. just by breeding. And, and Keith, if I can go back to the, um, the B cell and the immunoglobulin uh, sequencing that we were talking about earlier. Right. This, this reversion technique that we're just talking about with respect to Darwin and his pigeons, right. this reversion technique is also uh, used by scientists today to decide which flu vaccine to prepare each year. How do they do that? They, they, they backpedal, if you will, in the, uh, the breeding of, of, of tracking these, these viruses and so mm-hmm. forth to the strain that most closely resembles the wild type of what they think is coming from the far east so that's how they know that's how they know which one is going to be stronger because it most closely resembles the wild type that's correct so that's and then they so of all the many strains they actually use this technique to determine which strain they're going to produce the uh, flu shot but the reason why they go with the wild type is that uh any subsequent spin-off strains from that same virus even though it may have variations the immune response is going to be brisk because it's going to be against the wild type or the original strain Mm mm-hmm now, there's also something called analogous variation that Darwin talked about. We talk about this as where evolution produces two similar organs in completely different species, like the eye of a human is exactly the same as the eye in an octopus, and convergent, I think it's called convergent evolution. Well, he called it analogous variation, and he described it where the same traits express themselves in related species. So, for example, in this pigeon breeding, they would have pigeons that would appear with reversed feathers on their head and feathers on their feet. And he noticed that this could appear in completely different breeds of pigeon on completely different countries, you know, far apart from each other, not related, and yet they would suddenly appear to have this feature. What's interesting about that, Keith, is that Darwin could not explain that 150 years ago when he wrote The Origin of the Species or when he was doing all of the research behind that, you know, what was eventually published in 1859. He knew something was causing it, but he didn't know what it was. And it can't be random, right? Right. It couldn't be random. If it was random, you know, you would have gotten different features. But the same features showed that there was actually that the gene pool 
already contain the information in modules or programs that can be turned on and off to allow for adapt adaptation. So what was happening was that in England, a breeder would stumble upon a turned on variation and then somewhere, say in Germany, a different breeder using different pigeons, different breeds of pigeons would accidentally turn on that same genetic information. And so it would suddenly appear in different breeds, but it was because it was all within the one pigeon gene pool. Exactly, and this, this really uh, occurs because there's a rearrangement or transposition of the DNA elements that were previously silent, but were then activated. Right. So then we have the chromosome that has two real parts to it. You have the, the off-on switches, and then you actually have the genetic information that'll, that'll pass on the genetic elements to create that kind, that specific kind. Right. And Galapagos finches are an example of this. We now know that those they are the large beak, small beak is actually turned on or off by variation-inducing genetic elements. So the, it was in, essentially what's happening is that the Galapagos finches were pre-programmed to change so that they would be able to adapt to their environment as it changed. That is not a random process. That is an intelligently designed process. And, you know, the, the, the chance happenings that evolutionists are always spouting, you know, with time and chance, anything can happen. Darwin even wrote that he knew that chance was not enough. It wasn't an explanation. Oh, I love this quote. And, and this yeah. is what he wrote. He said, I have hitherto sometimes spoken as if the variation so common and multiform in organic beings under domestication and in a lesser degree in those in a state of nature had been due to chance. This, of course, is wholly incorrect expression, but it serves to acknowledge plainly our ignorance of the cause of each particular variation. Now, in all fairness to Mr. Darwin, this is 150 years ago. Right. We now know in the last 10 to 15 years the various genetic mechanisms by which variation and adaptation are occurring, and that's what we're talking about on this show. And it turns out that the vast majority of it is not single-point mutations. It's This is actually designed. These are not accidents. Correct. These so. were pre-programmed genomes. The chromosome was complete and there, and that's why we're talking about reverting back to the original kind, you know, whether it's the rock pigeon or a human being. Right. You know? Well, so, if you're just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. And we are talking about variation-inducing genetic elements. Now, we want to let people know that we are getting this information from what I did is accumulated the results of about five different articles, scientific review articles, and published in... Journal of Creation and also the Answers in Genesis Technical Journal, and written by Dr. Peter Borger and Dr. Gene Leitner and others. That's the source of our material. So let's get into uh, the next section, which is on genetic elements. Okay, yeah, let's, let, let's talk about transposons and uh, endogenous retroviruses and some of the other quirky things that uh, have caused more confusion probably than they should have right. over the last 10 years. So genomes, now that's the genetic information to make an organism, including human genomes, are riddled with what are called endogenous retroviruses or ERVs. Correct. Now these endogenous retroviruses were once thought to be remnants of ancient RNA viruses that invaded the human genome. And mm -hmm. some examples that, that we can readily recognize today are the flu virus or even the HIV virus. And what happened was that these uh, genetic sequences were copied and created, and a virus-like RNA sequence uh, contained in the capsid of the virus got inserted into another place in the DNA, and that caused some something that we call jumping genes. Right. However, comparisons to viruses today indicate that this has only been happening for a relatively short period of time, right. not a long period of time, not millions of years. Right. So it implies that RNA viruses uh, actually have a recent origin. Correct. So this opens up an interesting possibility. What if RNA viruses actually escaped from an organism and maybe the result of ERVs 
and not the cause. So instead of having a picture where viruses from the outside created we don't know how come in and start creating jumping genes inside an organism, actually perhaps the jumping genes were already there and are actually useful to the organism, but have, because of picking up genetic code, have actually escaped from the organism and gone into the environment and now become dysfunctional and are the source of diseases. You know, one of the interesting things, too, Keith, about the RNA viruses is that they do not become part of the germ cell line or the reproductive cell line. That would be the sperm and or the um, ovum, the eggs that are produced by the ovaries. They're rarely, if ever, part of that. So, so if a, so that so so what you're saying is, if a virus were to attack an organism, it wouldn't be passed on to the next generation. Correct. Even just, though it might mess with his, the DNA. That's correct. It's not passed on. So that argues against this idea, and we're, we'll share with you the idea of how it can go the other way in reality. Yeah, so we know very little really about the purpose of the endogenous retroviruses, but they can act like the similar insertion sequences, which are transposons, and they're very abundant in bacteria. So we're going to talk a little bit about that too. Right. So this ability then to change the gene is something that bacteria take advantage of. It's called genome shuffling in bacteria, and it happens so frequently that you can't really even speak of bacteria having a specific genetic order because all the bacteria have got different orders of the same genes. It's, all, it's been shuffled so much, like a deck of cards, but you're still stuck with the same cards. It's just been shuffled and rearranged. So experiments show that shuffling is an important mechanism that bacteria use to generate variation. And you know, what's really interesting, Keith, is that over a 20-year period of time, uh, E. coli breeding experiments demonstrated more than 10,000 generations. And the insertion sequence elements dramatically changed while the uh, short, um, mm -hmm. the short nucleic acid. No, it's a single, single uh, nucleic polymorphisms. Right. The single. Right. Those, the point mutations. They were not that terribly abundant. Okay? Right. So, right. you had a, approximately 100 mutations or so in those 10,000 generations, and that's not a whole lot. So, if people get the idea, basically what they're doing is they get a big jar of sugar and they dump some bacteria in it. And then they study those bacteria generation after generation after generation, which I guess is typically, what, about 20 minutes for a generation of bacteria. But still, they do this for years and years and years beyond 10,000 generations and see what happens. And the amazing thing is that you get, well, actually, very little happens. You get about 100 mutations, most of those are these genetic sequences, these what are called IS or insertion sequences that are just rearrangements of the gene. So of those 100 mutations, almost all of those are rearrangements of the genetic information, and virtually none of them are actual nucleotide changes. Now, what was interesting too, Keith, in those breeding experiments in the bacteria is that the uh, insertion sequence elements generated some fitness adaptation, mm -hmm. you know. So uh, things did get better. They yes, did adapt it, to their new home in the jar. What, whether it was the food or faster reproduction, but what they found is that 80% of the changes occurred over the first two years, and then it slowed down or plateaued off logarithmically to stability because so they didn't nothing, have to adapt anymore because it had right. the same food source and the same temperature and the same everything. So you didn't have any more adapt adaptability at that point in time. Right. And this is no totally need. different from the idea that we get when we hear the evolutionary story, how organisms are getting mutations and adapting, and it should be a fairly constant rate. As these nucleotides change kind of randomly, then the organism should slowly change over time. That's not what happens. What happens is you get 
organisms into a new environment, you get rapid change because it's pre-programmed to change. It's pre-programmed to adapt to its new environment, and then it just logarithmically drops off until there's no more change at all. And no matter how long you continue the experiment, nothing happens. Well, if you changed the environment, though, Keith, there more change would occur. That's right. The, the bacteria would then readapt to the new environment, but still only using the genetic information that's available to it. So it would simply reshuffle the deck again, and we'll get into it, but it turns on actually secret genes that are off. Right. It's going to turn those on. And this is also consistent with other studies that show that the uh, IS transpositions overcome stressful situations, mm -hmm. which we just alluded to, and allow the organism to switch to another food source or another climate change or whatever, whatever the case may be. Right. They found out that the transposition rates, those, those jumping genes or those variation-inducing genetic elements, happen faster in starving cells rather than growing cells. So if the cells were growing and everything else was stable, there was no need for change. Exactly right. Yeah, in fact, in at least one case, these elements, these IS elements, activated a specific catabolic gene, which just means a, a digestive gene. It gets a source of energy. Only if that particular food source was present in the environment. So the organism, that gene remained dormant, the organism was in a, a food source environment, and when the food source it was using went away, it was able to switch to a different food source that was in the environment. Amazing. De done deliberately, not accidentally. Yeah, it's very interesting. So, so these IS elements are actually part of the original genetic information within the bacteria, within the organisms. So a couple of mechanisms there, then. You have the insertion sequences, and those are some of the variation-inducing uh, genetic elements. Mm -hmm. And then you also have this shuffling the order of the genes, which is very common in, in bacteria. Okay? Um, now, if you have populations of billions and billions of different bacteria and cells, all possible rearrangements are possible and can occur in this shuffling uh, mechanism. Right, right. And that's what allows for the adaptability. The ones that don't adapt die off, and this sounds Darwinian, and the ones that do make that adaptation can. Right. But you still have bacteria. You don't have something else coming out of it. Right. So tell me about cryptic operons. What the heck are cryptic operons, and why should I care what they are? Uh, <laughs> all right. We're going to talk about some E. coli. That's a, a bacteria that's uh, abundantly found in the uh, normal floor of your bowel. Uh, Escherichia coli have three different cryptic operons that can metabolize alternative sugar sources. Okay. One is cellobios, the other one is arbutin, and the other one is salicin. Okay. These yeah. are three different sugar sub, uh, substances or substrates that they can utilize, but the cryptic nature of this is that it's hidden from view, and it's not necessarily seen unless these types of sugars are put in front of the bacteria as the sole source of, of carbohydrate. Now, and what is an operon again? An operon is part of the gene okay. segment that turns off or turns on, depending on the environment, right. something that's already pre-programmed and there from the very beginning. And okay. what is it not seen by? You said it's not seen by. You mean if we look in it with a microscope, then we can't see it? Well, no. It wasn't discovered until they just put these odd sugars in front of the bacteria, and they, they were either going to live or they didn't. It's unseen, unseen by natural selection, which means that's why they're cryptic. They're hidden. They cannot be acted upon by natural selection. So there's no way for natural selection to act upon these genes. What should theoretically happen is that they would mutate by single-point mutations and just decay away. And perhaps maybe in the future they will, but they have not so far. So you've got bacteria with all these different choices of gene programs that it can run, and it simply runs them depending on what new environment it's in. So how is it, and we've talked about this in past podcasts too, about duplicate genetic information. How is it possible that there can be duplicate genes? Because if, a, if an organism can only run one set of genes at a time, then the information, whether it dies or lives, has no effect. So natural selection can't determine that, oh, this is a weaker 
gene, this is a weaker chain, we have to, we have, you know, we're going to randomly shuffle and, and create a newer chain. You can't do that because it's not seen, it's not being activated. Well, in the, the Genetica journal, this is uh, one of the conclusions that they came up with, and it says this, I'm going to read this as a quote. As cryptic genes are not expressed to make any positive contribution to the fitness of the organism, it is expected that they would eventually be lost to the, due to the accumulation of inactivating mutations. Cryptic genes would thus be expected to be rare in natural populations. This, however, is not the case. Over 90% of natural isolates of E. coli carry cryptic genes for the utilization of beta-glucosidase sugars. And these cryptic operons can all be activated by insertion sequence elements and when so activated allow the E. coli to use the beta-glucoside sugars as the sole carbon and energy source. So very contrary to the evolutionary model. So what microbiologists are discovering is that things simply do not fit the Darwinian model. They fit the intelligent design model that all these things were pre-programmed to allow organisms to survive. They're saying that starvation triggers a transposition of the genetic information through these IS elements that turn on these cryptic genes. Right. And then the other genes control the activities of the uh, other uh, uh, VIGEs. And, the, and this is clear, clear evidence of purposeful design because it's already pre-programmed going back to the wild strains. So tell us what some of the common uh, VIGEs are, which is variation-inducing genetic elements. What, what are some of the common things that microbiologists are seeing in the different types of animals? Well, in, in the bacteria, we talked about the uh, insertion sequence elements mm -hmm. and, and the shuffling. Um, in plants, you have other basic elements, the BS elements, the CIN elements, and the MU elements, MU. Um, mammals, we've talked about the... Um, uh, ERVs, that would be the um, endogenous retroviruses, the LINES and the SINES. SINES means a short, interspersed nucleotide um, change, mm -hmm. okay? And then the um, LINES would be the long, interspersed nucleotide uh, element change. Yeah. And then you have microsatellites. So, so. What about, so there's all these different ways, and insects have different ways, and, and yeast have different ways, but in humans, there are variation-inducing genetic elements that are basically mobile genetic elements. They make up several classes, which you described, and they make up actually more than a third of the human genome. That's incredible. Mm. So one-third of what's there genetically is all these jumping genes. It's kind of a layman's term for what's going on. You know what's fascinating, Keith, about these uh, endogenous retrovirus-type sequences? Mm. It acts as a copy-paste mechanism. And you know, you know, I find that fascinating because everything today, when you look at your own personal computer, okay, right. and you look at the way it's set up, um, you know, with the, the, the programming and so forth, uh, everything is pre-programmed. It's there. Right. It's you know? like genetic code, right? It's, exactly. It's code like a software code, like a computer. And with the click of a mouse, you can change what you're doing on that, on mm -hmm. that spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's, that's the opera, and that's the turning off, turning on type thing. Right. Run different software. Yeah, exactly. And that's basically what... gears. Yeah, that's basically what is happening. That's what these things are doing. They're acting as software to handle the digital code that's in the organism. So that's ERVs. Then there's more than 300,000 sequences of ERVs. and th So that makes up about 8% of the DNA. Of lines, 21%, signs, 11%. And then there's others like long terminal retrotransposons, etc. So a lot of the information in your genetic makeup is these jumping genes, these elements. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about um, viruses. Okay. And where? How, they, how they got their start, where they come from, and, and what's the big deal, and maybe the, the changing paradigm of really what it's really all about. So the theory now is that, at least um, among some scientists, is that RNA viruses actually emerged from these variation 
inducing genetic elements. One of the things that's proof of that is that RNA viruses contain a small number of genes. Yeah, in fact, the HIV virus has only about eight or nine genes. And some have even fewer. And remember, these viruses cannot live apart from the host, yes. the human host. They're totally parasitic, or, or whatever host. It could be an animal host. Right. So, so Yeah, monkey, sure. Where did this genetic information come from? Where did these genes come from? Well, there's an easy explanation if you think of it as coming from the organism and going and creating the virus, and that's because of it can be caused by an accidental polymerase read-through. Now, we've in the past, we've explained to people about how polymerase is that machine, that mechanism, that, that protein machine that actually reads the digital code in the DNA. And if it doesn't stop in the right place, it can add an extra segment on. So that's how genetic information can be added to these variation-inducing genetic elements just by a simple accident. So, so basically, you have this, this virus, which is a protein capsule, a coat, if you will. Yes. Housing a few number of genes that can be thought of as orphan genes that are found in the host genome, but somehow became separated from and housed or enveloped, if you will, in this right. protein capsid coat. And that's, that is proof because the orphan gene... An orphan gene means it doesn't serve any purpose for the virus. It's just genetic information there trapped inside the virus. And where did that genetic information come from? It came from the host. Yes. It came from the host. So we know that information moves from a host to a virus. So, And we know that inside the host there are already these pre-designed jumping genes, genetic variation-inducing genetic elements, if they get separated from the host, and because they're encapsulated, they can survive outside the host, there you now have the birth of a new virus. Now, what's, what's interesting about HIV, Keith, and a lot of listeners will probably want to know about this, is that the reason why it's so difficult to make a vaccine against this virus mm is because it picked up part of the gene of the human defense system, the GP120 core gene. Now, this is, this is a sanctuary-type gene where your body will not— if your body made antibodies mm. against its own host defense system, you would die immediately. Mm. Your whole immune system would collapse on itself. So it's, it's in a protected um, state, if you will. That's why we call it a, a sanctuary. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you won't make uh, genes. I'm sorry. You won't make uh, antibodies against something that is so critical to your body. It's it's a no no. Your body just doesn't make uh, antibodies to that part of the uh, the system, or else it'll call, it'll be a catastrophe. So it's very hard to make a a uh, even though studies are ongoing to try uh, to make a a reasonable um, uh, vaccination against HIV. But it's very very difficult because it's such privileged infor- information. So that's, how, that's what makes HIV so tough for the body to kill it. It picked up this information. So it turns out that all our RNA viruses have their origin in the genome of living cells through recombination of the host's DNA elements. So genes, promoters, and, enhan- and enhancers that create the virus in the first place. So Every so often, you get an accident, some recombination produces a molecular replicator, and you have a new virus. Mm. Now, you know, you know, it's also very interesting, Keith, mm. um, is that uh, ma- many, many plasmid experiments have occurred in bacteria. That's where a virus will insert a genetic sequence into a bacterium, okay. and then th- suddenly that bacterium becomes much more virile. Uh, and when I say virile, I mean uh, deadly. Okay, I don't mean it in a viral sense. It's viral, meaning deadly. They use the genetic information that's plugged in from the virus to gain not only reproductive advantage, but also it can become a uh, a death sentence to the uh, organism that's that's being invaded by that bacterium. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and some examples of that are the toxins that can be elaborated now by these new super bacteria 
that are associated with uh, diphtheria or scarlet fever, food poisoning, botulism, cholera. Cholera is the number one uh, uh, killer worldwide of uh, pediatric population. This is coming from the viruses that are getting the information from the host. And it's injecting it into these super bacteria now. Right. Okay. That, and then that turns on this uh, production of uh, deadly toxins that are elaborated by this new bacterium, which is, is a lethal sentence. It's a death sentence, really, for the... Um, so um, what you're saying is, is that diseases are, in fact, the result of the decay of genetic information. That's correct. It's not new information being created, like Darwin thought. It's actually the decay of current information. Yeah, and, and it's really a mistake. Right. Well, this idea that jumping genes create variation isn't a new concept. It's actually been one that's been being developed over the past several decades. In fact, Barbara McClintock, who was the discoverer of the first mobile genetic elements in maize, or corn, uh, was first to recognize the true nature of jumping genes. In 1956, she suggested that what she coined as transposons function as molecular switches that determine when nearby genes turn off and on. So back as far as 1956, microbiologists were beginning to discover this concept that the genetic information is actually designed to change on its own. Now, that, that's only two years after Watson and Crick discovered uh, DNA. So right. she was uh, a pioneer researcher who was uh, traveling in uncharted territory. Her work, by the way, was forgotten for about 40 years, and it's only been recently resurrected. Because of some of the findings of these experiments. Correct. And because of her coin of the term uh, transposon and the on-off switch mm -hmm. uh, that would you know, allow for that genetic information to be expressed. Right. These, are, these were concepts that are being brought forth and confirmed in today's genetic research. But she was the first one to, uh, to use the terminology and suggest um, the theory behind it. Yeah, it's only recently that we've been begun to understand just how powerful these variation-inducing genetic elements are as gene regulators and gene switches. And, you know, Keith, uh, there was a team of researchers recently at the University of California, Berkeley, uh, that recently proved that if a sign, and let me just say what that is, that's a short interspersed nucleotide, that's a sign, if a sign lands some distance from a gene, it can take on powerful regulatory function. Yeah, still, even though it's a distance away, it can still function to control that gene. So over time, these variation-inducing genetic elements wind up becoming detrimental to the genome because everything is decaying. That's one thing science has definitely proved, that organisms and genetic information is decaying over time. It is not improving. It's not getting better. So because the information that regulates the integration and activity of the variation-inducing genetic elements is subject itself to mutation. So the control mechanisms for these vidges is also itself falling apart. Keith, if I can um, forgive my, my use of the term, but so you're saying that the genetic elements mm -hmm. in the genome, pick your animal, it doesn't matter if it's the human genome or the mouse genome or the chimp genome, the genetic elements are starting to devolve mm -hmm. because we're seeing destruction, decay, disease, death, deformity. Things are devolving right. and not evolving. Right. Is that is that fair? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, a couple of examples uh, would be asthma. Okay. And you have an association with uh, microsatellite DNA and instability that causes the bronchial hyperreactivity and the, the need for a multitude of different medicines for the severe asthmatics. And another example would be psoriasis, which is uh, associated with an HERV expression genome phenomenon, uh, which gives you the, um, uh, it's an autoimmune event that causes the, mm. the the patches, the white scaly patches on the elbows, the knees, and the back, and so forth. So, the, so some diseases that we've talked about have been caused by uh, bacteria and uh, viruses, and some are caused by these genetic elements themselves within the organism, not related to viruses, but still them malfunctioning and messing the organism up, basically, with a disease. Yep, and, and both asthma and psoriasis, by the way, in very, very severe cases— 
are treated with um, uh, medications that alter the immune response because the uh, immune response is what's triggering severe asthmatic attacks and psoriasis. So to wrap this up then, Mike, what causes all the variation within the different kinds of plants and animals? I mean, that's what Darwin was really good at describing. He described all this different variation, all these different speciation of different kinds of animals. What well, causes it, it all? It all goes back to the original, okay? okay? You have the genetic elements wrapped up in the chromosome. Mm-hmm. And the various sequences that could be turned off or turned on depending on the type of problem that was presented to the organism, whether it was an environmental thing, a starvation thing, uh, a certain type of carbohydrate that was only available uh, to be metabolized, whatever the case may be, there were, there were on-off switches that would allow for adaptability and variability to allow for the organism to survive. And if it didn't have that ability to adapt, right. built-in sequences that were already pre-programmed, then it would not um, uh, survive. Right. So, so when God created all the different kinds of animals, he gave them the ability to adapt to new environments, to spread out across the earth and speciate. So you get all different kinds of dogs, but dogs not becoming cats. All different kinds of cattle, ox, buffalo, steer, but they don't turn into bears. All different kinds of grasses, as, as we've been over in the past, all the different forms of grass that are all in one kind of organism. There is adaptability to a degree. Yes, the, these various species can adapt to certain types of environments. However, one of the things that we still see to this day is nothing new created or nothing new evolving, but we actually see a variety of species that go onto the endangered species list, species mm-hmm. list, mm-hmm. and we also see extinction. Right. We don't see new creations, new kinds. We, we're seeing extinction of the existing kinds. So genomes, the genetic gene pools of organisms, use these variation-inducing genetic elements to affect the reproductive cells to provide for an increased ability to adapt to a changing environment. And that explains what Darwin referred to as due to chance, which he knew chance was just a placeholder for I don't know. Chance doesn't actually do anything. It's just a way we describe that we don't know what it is. Now we do. It's variation-inducing genetic elements. And all living systems we know now have numerous design mechanisms to restructure, repair, control chromosomal changes while maintaining viability. And therefore, chromosomal rearrangements also have adaptive purposes. But like I said, it's to a degree. Right. Well, thank you, Mike. It's been a wonderful show, and we appreciated having your medical knowledge background for this. You have been listening to Evidence for Faith with Keith Kendricks and Dr. Mike Larrakis. Join us again next Sunday at 4 p.m. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. 